News on RTHK. Europe is on its back. Now it's really impacting everything. Economic efficiencies, which means more job opportunities. More stable investment has been preferred as a clause. Money for nothing. Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. The U.S. Commerce Department confirms that uh, GDP contracted in the first quarter. Greece falls into recession as capital flight from Greek banks resumes and Chinese stocks stabilize after last week's slump. But the China 10-year yield has the biggest weekly advance in six months. Well, nine countries released GDP figures on Friday, including the U.S. We'll talk to our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood, about what this latest update on the state of the global economy tells us. We'll also talk with Simon Rabinovich from The Economist about the China stock market and get his view on whether the latest uh, fall represents the beginning of something more serious. Alex Wong of Ample Capital is back in the chair as guest host. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Renita. So, Alex, uh, Chinese equities stabilized on Friday after Thursday's 6.5% plunge. Mm. Are you relieved? Oh, yes, a little bit, actually. Uh, Because on Friday, if you look at the stock market in China, many equities actually climbed the and quite well, actually. I think uh, people are more focusing on mid-caps right now in China and mid- and small-caps, and, and they are stabilized, They are stabilizing quite fast. And so that that is a relief, actually. I think uh, selling is mainly on big-caps right now, and um, the market is curing those a margin a little bit. But uh, the four has not, um, I think, um, make um, the sentiment very panic. The PBOC says in a report that it wants to actually see a healthy stock market. And this is a day after surging Chinese shares slumped more than 6% in record trading volume. In its latest stability report, the PBOC said that it was monitoring financial risks in the Chinese economy, including heavily indebted local governments and a slowing real estate market. Chinese stocks ended flat on Friday with the Shanghai Composite closing down just 0.15% at 4,600. And in Hong Kong, shares of golden properties have now completely recouped the previous week's 40% plunge. Shares in golden have risen for five days in a row, back to a new record high and up almost 500% on the year. The company, Golden Financial, however, has uh, only made back 13% of its loss thus far, and there's been no explanation for either the plunge or the subsequent recovery. Alex, do you have any kind of explanation you can give us as to what is causing the volatility? Oh, no. I think, uh, uh, first of all, Hanergy had impacted uh, the stocks. These this pairs of stocks are heavily because they are both um, very huge and uh, they had risen a lot this year. So uh, the, the plunge in Hanergy has caused this the fall in, in this group. But the uh, recovery? But the recovery, I think, uh, probably the sellers are gone and then uh, buyers are picking up. But uh, this is very difficult to explain the, the subsequent recovery. 
Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Okay, well, in a flurry of economic data releases at the end of the week, Greece was confirmed as falling into a recession after GDP contracted by 0.2%, following a fall of 0.4% in the previous quarter. Uh, data also showed another 5 billion euros was withdrawn from the Greek banking system by households and businesses. As important deadlines for payments loom, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew says that it's best to it's in the best interest of the global economy to reach a solution rather than let things escalate to a crisis. There is no doubt but that if there's a crisis, the worst impact, the deepest impact will be in Greece. But uh, it would be uh, unwise to think that just because technical contagion have been uh, have been changed from uh, earlier years in that debt is now held by sovereigns as opposed to banks, that we know what the full consequence of a financial crisis or the withdrawal of, uh, of a country from the monetary union in Europe would mean. Many observers were expecting this weekend to be the deadline for a deal. So when, in Jack Lew's view, is the real deadline? There's the possibility that June 5th is not the real deadline, that there's a later date in June. But what we know for sure is that you keep raising the risk of an accident if you put off the action until what is whatever the next deadline is. Uh, there's been some discussion uh, about the possibility of of bringing some of the payments to a later date. So instead of having several deadlines in June, there's one deadline a bit later in June. Economic data out of Japan also disappointed with consumer spending sliding 1.3% in April compared to expectations of a 3% rise. Despite this, the Nikkei 225 closed higher for the 11th day in a row. The index rose a total of 5.3% during the month of May. In other GDP figures, um, let's see, Brazil's economy contracted 0.2% and Canada's economy surprisingly fell by 0.6% against expectations of a rise of 0.3%. Switzerland's GDP also contracted. However, in some good news amongst all of the GDP releases, Italy's economy grew over the last three months for the first time in six quarters. India also outperformed, growing at 7.5% and exceeding expectations. A second estimate of first quarter U.S. GDP showed that the U.S. economy contracted by 0.7% in the first three months of the year. Weaker exports, stronger imports, and a slower inventory build all contributed to the performance of the U.S. economy being revised down from the Commerce Department's previous estimate of 0.2%. The U.S. stock market reacted by closing down 0.6%, with the S&P 500 closing at 2,107. However, all in all, the S&P 500 was up 1.1% for May, and so was the dollar, U.S. dollar index up uh, 2.5% for the month. Here's Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis President James Bullard with his assessment. If you take the quarterly uh, GDP numbers and you run them through a seasonal filter, you're going to get seasonal factors that shouldn't be there uh, because this is supposed to be deseasonalized data. So I think, uh, you know, we've got to view the first quarter numbers as a little bit suspect. Last year we looked through the number and we did get very strong growth in the second and third quarters. So we'll see if something similar happens. So does the latest uh, GDP data change the view on the timing of rate hikes? Here's City Private Bank's global strategist Stephen Whiting with his view. 
Well, I just remember that we had a 2% decline in the economy in the first quarter of last year. Then we went on to add almost 3.5 million jobs over the full year. So don't make too much of it, but this is a little more than last year. There are some elements of repeat of last year. The U.S. had a massive energy boom uh, that is now unwinding faster mm -hmm. uh, in terms of investment and employment uh, than a grid. So these are things that I think are a little bit more lasting in the slowdown. But I, I don't think that that's going to stop us from having a, you know, a pretty strong second quarter. The Fed is conditioning its response on being ineffective, that they're going to... Uh, provide rate hikes that are so small that it doesn't impede the pace of recovery. They're saying that they will only tighten to the extent that we can continue to have tightening labor markets and strong growth. All right, let's bring in our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. He joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Renita. So, Barry, why was there such a big difference between the first and second estimates of U.S. GDP? Well, you know, yes, that was a significant divergence. That's true. But I'm fixated on the fact that we had a similar slowdown, even even deeper, in the first quarter of last year. And I like what your last two interlocutors said, that, in fact, uh, you know, the economy is going to rebound, and maybe that first uh, quarter data was somewhat misleading. As to why it was uh, five-tenths, it's just the revision. It's the normal revision. Uh, and you found that, indeed, it was worse than initially reported. So uh, maybe in the third and final reading of uh, first quarter GDP, it'll stay the same. Uh, we knew it was bad, and we've talked a lot, you and I, about mm. uh, how the bad weather affected things. And uh, there was something that we saw the beginnings of the reversal in the oil price. So I'm not particularly concerned about that, just like Jim Bullard. So uh, the bad weather and the port strike, uh, well, the bad weather being the seasonality factors that he referred to, uh, sort of making the data less reliable then? Yes, I think so. And you're right about the port strike. I mean, this was big. And I think we may see some residual for the early part of the uh, Q2 when we get that data. But uh, because after all, we are now beginning Q3. But uh, no, I, I, look, the U.S. economy is good. And if we, if we want to look at uh, the data coming out, be guided by what happens on Friday with this uh, jobs report. I mean, the expectations are 233,000 jobs created. That's a lot. So uh, we shouldn't, uh, we, I think it's wrong to say that the U.S. is teetering on the edge of recession or in sluggish economy. I think, in fact, we're doing pretty well. Barry, we don't usually see confirmation that we're in recession until after the event. What would you say are the risks that the second quarter GDP also turns out to be weak and we find that the U.S. economy is actually in the midst of another recession? Well, now that's an interesting prospect. That is a very interesting prospect. And, and uh, of course, that would cause me to revise everything I just <laughs> said. But I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, yes, that would be two consecutive quarters of decline, and that is the classic definition of recession. What you would look for if you're really going to get a recession is rising prices. We don't have that. You would look for a falling stock market. We see a stock market that is no longer rising, perhaps. It is flatlining, but it is not at all declining. We would see declining corporate profits. We're not seeing that. We would see consumer sentiment declining. We've seen some blips, but it's not a significant decline. We would not see auto sales at near record levels. And we would certainly not see job gains. So those are some of the things that would be clear indications of recession, none of which are on my screen.
What about net trade, Barry? Uh, net trade subtracted 1.9% from GDP. What is this telling us about the trend in global trade? Well, it's telling us that we need TPP, if I might add, <laughs> the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because that's really going to boost trade. That's your pet peeve these days, isn't it, Barry? <laughs> the Say TPP. That that's your favorite topic, isn't it, these days? Well, it's, it's certainly in the news, and we're, we're going to have an important vote in the next two weeks in in the House of Representatives on TPP. Uh, we shall see how that goes. Uh, I think it's going to win, but I must say, since I've returned to Washington, some of the signs are increasingly negative. Certainly the trade unions are really mounting a campaign against it, and the Obama haters in the Republican Party are stepping forward to say, we should not give this president anything. So mm. we shall see. This is a real test of, of Paul Ryan, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. But as to trade... I think that uh, this is chronic. I mean, there's nothing new. The United States continues to run a very significant trade deficit. And the United States has a huge deficit in its current account, meaning that dollars accumulate abroad. We are so gifted that people are willing to hold those dollars, even at these low interest rates, because the other currencies are regarded as less good. At some point, as the doomsayers have been saying for a very long time, the dollar might collapse because people don't want to hold it. But certainly now, the trend is that the dollar is mighty. It's been rising. So, you know, the trade deficit, nothing new. Is it good? It's obviously bad. But it hasn't had an impact on our economy or the global economy as yet. Now, Barry, from Friday's batch of GDP reports around the globe, we know that Greece has also slipped back into recession. Will this complicate Greece's discussions with its creditors to restructure its debt? Yes, Uh, but I think we're going to see that restructuring happen in the next few days. I think the reason is that Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, is hosting the group of seven leaders, that means Obama and all the rest, um, in Bavaria, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. She does not want that meeting to be dominated by Greece, you know, as so many meetings have been thus far. This has gone on five years. So I think there's likely to be an interim deal or Mm. the prospect of a deal that would at least get it off the front pages of the financial press for the next week. But it looks like they're inching towards some kind of an agreement, despite, obviously, what you say is correct. The Greek economy is very weak. All right, Barry, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Barry Wood, our regular Monday guest on the phone from Washington, D.C. The time is now 8.17 a.m. and you are listening to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Well, in an attempt to own the consumer products experience and margin structure, Amazon has been going the way of private label. The Wall Street Journal has reported that the e-commerce giant is expanding its own elements brand to an array of products that might otherwise come from a competitor like Walmart or a grocery store perhaps like Costco. Canaan Partners' Maha Ibrahim discusses Amazon's attempts at private labels with Bloomberg's Brad Stone. It seems to me that it's going against the grain as well, which is why I'm confused. In this on-demand, excess capacity, collaborative consumption model, uh, you're seeing companies like Instacart, which is a portfolio company of ours, pop up that are really taking advantage of the no 
no capitalized model of selling groceries. And for people that are no Instacart fulfills from Costco or Whole Foods or and delivers Safeway. it right exactly. here. Exactly, right? exactly. So it is an on is a delivery on demand model for groceries. Amazon is going retro and taking the web ban circa 1999 approach, which is yes, we're going to own the, the the warehouses, we're going to own the uh, trucks, and we're even going to own the supply chain in selling again milk and and, and they they basic did diapers groceries. last year, right? Yes. Diapers and baby wipes, and then they had to stop the sale of diapers because the manufacturer wasn't meeting the. So what are the risks here? What uh, you know? What does Amazon need to be worried about? Amazon all of a sudden becomes a consumer packaged goods company, and there's a whole host of risks associated with that. Um, going back, going as far as as you know, having fun with the FDA and having to deal with any sort of outbreak, particularly. With, with dairy things goods, that you dairy put in exactly, your body, yeah, exactly, the risks are and hard. they are owning the supply chain through the delivery. So there's really no one to blame but themselves. Again, for a really low margin product, which is why it's confusing. And yet they can drive prices down, which we yes. know they love to do. So yes. last question here. We've seen Amazon expand same day delivery to 14 cities. Mm -hmm. In New York, they're fulfilling from other stores, not just their own, yeah. own fulfillment center. It does seem like they have really started to notice companies like Instacart, the delivery service Postmates, maybe one day Uber, that turns stores into delivery nodes. Do you, do you think Amazon's strategy, all these things we're seeing now, is trying to take into account this next wave of uh, delivery services? Oh, without question. I, they are trying to own the customer experience, period, full stop. And if that means going, in some, in some cases, going through the groceries chains and actually just providing the last mile, they're going to do that as long as it's Amazon branded. If it means, in the case of milk, owning the milk, branding the milk, dot, 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 they're going to do that as long as you as a customer are feeling that you are immersed in the Amazon experience. What That's think, what they care about. What do you about. think Amazon milk tastes like? Is that uh, <laughs> there anything special about that? And what does Amazon Prime milk taste That's like, right. too? <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, Kenan Partners Maha Ibrahim discussing uh, Amazon's uh, private label attempts with Bloomberg's Brad Stone. Let's take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down half a percent to 20,454. Australia's ASX 200 index is down two-tenths of a percent to 5,762. And Sol's Kospi is down three-tenths of a percent to 2,108. In currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.09 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 124.21 yen. And uh, one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 85 cents and one US dollar and 52 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about the bubble in China right after this. Starting from April 1st, 2015, plastic shopping bag charging will be fully implemented to cover all retail outlets. All plastic shopping bags, including flat top bags, non-woven bags and paper bags with plastic coating will be subject to a charge of 50 cents each or more. Retailers giving out free plastic bags may be prosecuted. Use less. Waste less. Bring your own bag. For details, please visit the Environmental Protection Department's website.
The time is now 8.22 a.m. and China's stocks may have stabilized uh, last Friday, but uh, does this mean that the wild ride is over? Simon Rabinovich is the Asia economics editor for The Economist, and he argues that it is inevitable that the current ongoing Chinese stock market bubble will pop. Let's welcome him to the show now. Good morning, Simon. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Um, an interesting uh, sort of uh, opinion that you're putting out there. Now, you pose a very important question, which is that if the equity bubble does burst, what will the economic consequences be? Can you give us the rundown? Sure. Well, the first point is to say that you mentioned that the stocks had stabilized on Friday. It is true that if you looked at the way that Friday ended, it looked like it was a stable day. But in fact, the intraday trading was was absolutely wild. The stocks started down 4%. They were up 2% at some point, And they did finish the day basically level. So we're still dealing with a highly, highly, highly volatile market. Um, we have no way of predicting, nobody has any way of predicting what the next step is going to be, uh, how long the, the rise is going to continue. But it's, it's clear that it is highly volatile, highly uh, uncertain. Um, when people look at a market that is uh, as crazy as it has been in China, typically the concern is you know, what the short-term impact would be if the bubble were to pop. That obviously is a concern in any country and in China. Uh, there would be a negative wealth effect. There would be an impact on investors who have been buying shares on margin. Uh, it would be negative for companies that are trying to raise equity financing. But our belief is that the bigger problem, the bigger fallout, is actually going to be long-term uh, and not short-term. Mm. Specifically, the, the point about equity financing. China, as an economy, has been over-reliant on, on debt for the last five years. I think everybody's quite familiar with the fact that the debt ratio has increased dramatically. It's gone from about 150% of GDP in 2008 to more than 250% today. That's an astonishing rise in a very short period of time. And one of the reasons for that is that the stock market has not been a viable venue uh, for fundraising for companies. The stock market simply has been too much of a sideshow for the economy as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, so when the market began to take off about a year ago now, uh, people were very optimistic that this was a sign not just that stocks were doing well, but that the economic model was beginning to transition towards having a proper capital markets. Now, if the bubble just inflates very quickly and then it pops, that damages confidence, that undermines investor faith and company faith in the market as a fundraising venue longer term. And so it just makes it that much more difficult for China to move away from a debt-based financing model. So that's what we see as the big concern. So Simon, you know, I, I take your point. On one hand, you say stocks are less central to China than they are to developed economies. Yet you also say that a healthy stock market is key to creating more direct financing to control China's debt problem. How do you reconcile the two? Well, I think the two are actually reconcilable. I mean, the point is that the stock market, if you look, for example, at the free float market capitalization, which is the portion of the market which is actually tradable, it's only about 40% of GDP. Um, in more developed economies and rich economies, it's over 100%. So in absolute terms, it means that the stock market is still relatively small in China. Now, that's one reason why if there is a bubble and then there is a, a, a big burst of the bubble, it's not as lethal for China.
China as it would be for another economy where the stock market is more central. Now, how do you get from 40% of GDP to 100% of the GDP? Well, one way, the very quick way, is to have valuations go through the roof, mm. as they now are doing. That is not the good way. The better way is to have lots and lots of companies coming to market, IPOing, having some of the big companies that have listed abroad looking to have listings in China, including the tech firms that are listed now in New York and a lot of the red ships that are listed in Hong Kong. Um, so that, that's what China has been moving towards, is having the, the primary market expanding through more listings. As that happens, the stock market as percentage of the economy will increase. It will be an, a more important node uh, for fundraising in China. Uh, Alex, so this is an interesting point that Simon brings up. Uh, do you see the primary market expanding or at least at the rate that it should be uh, to get to the places that uh, Simon is suggesting? Oh, yes, I think uh, they are relaxing the rules for IPO. So IPO would be more easier uh, probably uh, in the later of this year. But uh, the point is that if we are doing more IPOs, actually it would um, make the current process of valuation expansions uh, um, less easier. So uh, actually we may see a, a, a reversal of this. So the, the secondary market actually may, 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 may have some pressure because of the IPOs. Simon, uh, one quick question. How exposed would you say is the retail investor to the stock market in China? I mean, we hear lots of stories of, you know, taxi drivers and students and school teachers buying shares on margin. Can you uh, give us your opinion on the picture? Well, typically, according to the actual regulations, it should be very difficult for your ordinary taxi driver or student or teacher or, you know, Joe on the street to be able to buy shares on margin because there's a very high threshold that's expected in terms of personal net worth. You have to have over uh, 500,000 RMB, uh, which is a very high step. Um, so ordinary average people should not be able to be doing margin trading. Um, and what's interesting actually is that when you look at uh, household wealth allocation surveys, Stocks are actually a very small portion of ordinary people's wealth holdings, less than about 10%. A property is by far the lion's share at, at about three quarters. Um, so strictly speaking, the impact on ordinary people should not be that severe. Now, the problem with that, though, is there are all kinds of backdoor ways in which people have actually been able to, to buy shares on credit. Um, so one of the, the popular ones is something that's known as an umbrella trust, which basically allows people to take a share of a larger account, uh, which then has margin financing and direct lending from banks, so even more leverage than typical margin financing. So uh, this is actually one of the unknowns about the current rally. We can look at the overall share of margin financing, um, but then there's all kinds of hidden bank lending that's been brought into it. And, and this is really one of the big differences with, 2006-2007, which is the last time that China had a big stock market run-up. All right, Simon, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we've got to uh, wrap it there. That's Simon Rabinovich. He is uh, the Asia Economics Editor at The Economist, talking to us from Shanghai. Well, let's take a quick look at the numbers now. Uh, the Nikkei is down half a percent to 20,462. Australia's ASX index down eight-tenth of a percent to 5,726. And uh, Seoul's Kospi also down one2 
2,088. Gold currently stands at $1,191 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $65.12. So, uh, Alex, real quick, are we going to see any more bursting of bubbles in China this week? Oh, I think, uh, like I've said at the beginning, I think today probably we would see a stabilization again. Uh, but these few days would be crucial because uh, we would need to see stabilization because the market had been down quite fast and uh, that should be caused by um, uh, some uh, highly leveraged people going out but uh, uh, we don't we cannot afford the further losses from here I mean the sharp losses from here because uh, if that happened that would be a slow boring all right, Alex, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, today and every Monday. That's our regular Monday morning guest host, Alex Wong, Director of Ample Asset Management. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. There will be sunny periods and a few showers. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 82%. Time for the half-hour news with Samantha Butler. Civic Party lawmaker Dennis Kwok has expressed some optimism about Hong Kong's democratic progress despite comments from a mainland official yesterday. Following a meeting in Shenzhen with more than 50 LegCo members, the chairman of the Basic Law Committee, Li Fei, said Beijing's political framework for Hong Kong was for the long term, not just the 2017 chief executive election. Pan-Democrat lawmakers said the comments left them no choice but to vote down the government's reforms. Mr Kwok spoke to RTHK this morning. Right now, of course, they're saying that, look, if you don't accept this package, you'll never get another one. But I think that's more of a threat or a political rhetoric. 